I'm always amazed at how the Lord puts these services together. You know, we we schedule people as they're available, and then this morning the Lord gives us these two wonderful pictures of what it looks like to depend on him in weakness and to serve in weakness. And that's what we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Pastor Steve is away for a couple of weeks. I think it's birds this week and family next week. I might have that reversed, but uh, birds and family. I'd like for us to have a, a little family talk as American Christians. And if you're not American, then you're very much included in this. We'll make you honorary American. Uh, But you'll see that you're very much a part of this. Uh, If you've followed the news at all over the last two and three weeks, uh, you know that these are uh, troubled times. Our campuses are experiencing something that they've not experienced since the 1960s with different sit-ins and demonstrations and uh, different groups of students presenting administrators with long lists of what they're calling microaggressions. And one football team went on strike last week. That got everybody's attention and the chancellor resigned. Uh, Troubled times. And then, of course, there's France last week and then all the retaliations and governmental responses this week, more people dead. Pastor Soko mentioned Mali, uh, which was on Friday and uh, yesterday. And for us as American Christians, all of this comes on top of the uncertainty that results from the Supreme Court decision this June where uh, our picture of marriage is, or at least our, our legal understanding of what marriage is, Uh, was uh, completely redefined. And that asks us, leaves us asking a lot of questions. How should we as American Christians even think about ourselves in this new normal, or maybe even a better question, where do we as American Christians really find our freedom? Uh, As I was looking at the news this week, my thoughts went back to my own radical student days. You'll see what I mean in a minute. I went to a little Christian college in Dayton, Tennessee. It's between Chattanooga and Knoxville. And to give you a picture of what Dayton is like, in 2013, Barna Research named Chattanooga the most Bible-minded city in America. The very next year, Barna Research, this is 2014, last year, named Knoxville the most Bible-minded city in America. So Dayton is between these two most Bible-minded cities, and you can imagine that there's a lot of Christians in Dayton. Uh, During my days, Tennessee Right for Life uh, organized a, uh, we won't call it a demonstration, it was a a gathering, it was a rally uh, for life against abortion and for life. And we went down to Chattanooga, they gave us signs, Uh, We stood next to the busiest highway in Chattanooga on both sides of the highway. And the idea was to stand there for one hour with our signs. And as, as the hour went by, more and more people started turning up on both sides of the highway until the line of people on both sides of the highway was seven miles long. 
I remember seeing two cars during that hour. And we realized that the reason there are no cars except two was that everybody in town is standing next to the road. And there was this feeling of euphoria that we had. We're in the majority, we said. We're strong. You know, now is the time. New Agers always talk about having a harmonic convergence. When everybody does the right thing at the right time, we said, this is ours. This is the time when laws are going to fall and hearts are going to change because everybody has finally turned up. That was a long time ago. And as I look back on that time, I think it was a good thing that we did that. And the movement has survived into the 21st century, and today millennials tend to be more pro-life than their parents, so there was good accomplished there. But the laws didn't really change. And, And hearts have continued to move away from God, and society has continued to erode. But you know that feeling of our majority status? It it survived until the recent past. About five years ago, we were going around, I remember, saying 31 states have voted to preserve the biblical picture of marriage. Then came Maryland and Maine and Washington State, and then the courts weighed in, and then public opinion began to change. I'm not sure that if we have that vote today that we win that. We aren't really in the majority anymore, and I'm not sure that we ever really were. Russell Moore, the Southern Baptist leader, has said American Christians are no longer the moral majority. Instead, we're the prophetic minority. I like that. We're the prophetic minority. And what he means by that is that we're the minority of people that God is going to use to show everybody else what he is like, and we have a very special role in doing that. So this week and next week, I would like for us to talk about what it looks like to depend on God as the prophetic minority. And next week, we'll talk about what it looks like to serve as the prophetic minority. And I'm going to argue in both weeks that this is really a good thing. Thinking rightly as a prophetic minority will allow us to recover the gospel in our public witness and live it out as sons of God who have an inheritance from our Father that results from real freedom, as we'll start seeing today. Turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. In just a minute, we'll read all the way through to the first verse of chapter 5. And if you remember, a couple of years ago during my weeks up here, we went through Galatians 1 and 2, and then we skipped over 3 and 4 and went to 5 and 6, And we left some real gems behind in these two middle chapters of the book. And and I'd like to go to a little corner of the book that is maybe my favorite place in Galatians. If you remember, Paul is writing to the Galatian churches whom he founded, whom he started, or started the churches. They're in uh, present-day Turkey, and he's reminding them 
that we enter the Christian life by grace through faith in Christ, and we go on in the Christian life by grace through faith in Christ. It's grace through faith in Christ all the way down. The occasion of this letter, if you remember, is that the church was being infiltrated by these guys whom Paul called Judaizers. And they claim that we enter the Christian life by faith in Christ, but then we go on by bringing ourselves under the law of Moses. In, in other words, we, we start with Christ, we're saved with Christ, but then we add self-effort to that. And in doing that, we need to keep the rules and we need to be very strong. In this passage, Paul goes narrative. He, he tells a story that illustrates that God's people have always found freedom through dependence on God in weakness and in faith. And, and it's a story that includes, in Paul's retelling of it, a reversal that shocked the Galatian Christians And if we understand it rightly and apply it to our situation today, it should shock us as well. Galatians 4, would you follow along in your Bible as I read this passage? Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Who are the true sons of God? That's the question Paul is asking here. And because the passage gets a little complicated, I'll give you the answer up front. The true sons of God in the Galatian church were those who found freedom through dependence on the God of promise rather than any perceived strength that dependence on the law might provide. As Paul lays out this passage, we have a big picture, the first verse, then a story, then the reversal, which is Paul's interpretation of the story, and and finally there's a lesson at the end where he ties it all together. 
verse 21, he's asking, do you really understand who you are? And notice that he's addressing the Judaizers here, those that wanted everybody to go underneath the law. And he's asking them to consider whether they truly understand what the whole of Scripture teaches about identity and freedom as sons of God. Notice here that the word law is used twice. The first use of law, of the law, uh, refers to the Mosaic law at Mount Sinai that's talked about in, in, in Exodus. Remember the story? God's people, Israel, were in bondage. They were slaves. And God sends Moses to Egypt. He brings them out of slavery. They go to Mount Sinai, which for the Jewish mind is this place of incredible freedom because they've just come out of slavery. Moses goes up the mountain. God gives him the law. Moses comes down and then speaks to the people. Chapter 24, the people respond. Chapter 24 of Exodus, all the words the Lord has spoken we will do. The people say, thumping their chests, maybe. We're strong. We can keep this law. And Sinai became, in their minds, a place of freedom. It's where they said they could do it. There's a second use of the word law here. And when we read this, do you listen to the law, we ought to be thinking about the whole of Scripture, the whole of the old Testament. And we know from the whole Bible, really, that Israel didn't keep the law. It would have been much better if instead of saying, we can do it, that they had thrown themselves on their faces and said, God, help us. We can't do it. We're not strong enough. That would have been a better thing for them to do. But because they didn't, Sinai became for them a place of bondage. They were in bondage to self-effort because that's how they understood the law. So that's the frame in which this story is retold by Paul. Verses 22 and 23, uh, Paul, he he tells the story again. He's really saying, do you remember the story about where you came from? What's important here is that we're thinking about the origin of these two boys. Where did they come from? And Paul is inviting the Galatians to remember how anybody got to be rightly related to God in the first place. We won't look to Genesis. You probably know the story really well. But remember in chapter 15 of Genesis, God promised Abraham. So this is, you know, around the year 2000. This is this is 2,000 years before the Galatians even. Say 600 years before Moses. This is a long time ago. God promised Abraham that he'd have an heir from his own body. Abraham had no children. God said, your son is coming from your own body. He'll be your heir. But you remember how it goes in chapter 16 of Genesis. Time has gone by. Abraham and Sarai are getting way on in years. And instead of waiting on God, they decide to put together this plan so that Abraham can have an heir. And Sarai, who is old and weak, takes her young servant, Hagar, who is young and vibrant and strong, and gives her to Abraham 
and Hagar gives birth to Ishmael in the normal way, but by human ingenuity. Chapter 16 also talks about how Hagar persecuted Sarai. Once she realized that she was carrying the heir, and after the boy was born, she laughed at Sarai. Chapter 17, God then revisits Abraham and promises that, yes, indeed, he will really have a son who will really come from his wife, Sarai. Only this child will be born out of the woman's weakness and out of God's strength. And in chapter 21, Isaac is born because God is a God of promise. Also in that chapter, Ishmael is removed since he's not the heir. God cares for Ishmael and for Hagar in the wilderness. It's not that he didn't like them. He cared for them. But they were not the heir. Ishmael was not the heir. And God makes and continues the covenant with Isaac. That's the story. The point here is that the first son, Ishmael, comes about through self-effort, or what Paul in Galatians calls the flesh. He comes about through ingenuity and the strength of a young woman. The second son, Isaac, comes about through human weakness and because God has promised that he would do this. So if you're a Judaizer in Galatia or you're any kind of Jew, with whom do you identify in this story? Isaac, right? The promise comes through Isaac. That's what they're to be thinking. That's what we're to be thinking. All right? Be strong. Keep the law. Verses 24 through 27, we have the reversal, where Paul is asking, what do you, what do you think this story really means? And, and Paul interprets the story by linking the mothers of the two boys to two covenants or law arrangements. And he uses a method here called allegory in which a later meaning is inserted into an earlier uh, historical situation. Uh, He also uses a method called typology in which you take a historical context and and then you you correlate it or make it or you connect it to some later meaning. This seems really strange to us, but it would have been a very common way for the rabbis to teach, and also uh, the Greeks taught this way. So the ancients heard this, and they're following along. For us, it seems a little strange. Uh, Paul goes back and forth between these two methods, allegory and typology. All right, verses 24 and and 25. I'll read it again for us. Uh, Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is found from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, for she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. All right? Hagar, in her strength and self-effort, represents the covenant God made with Moses. It was begun at Mount Sinai, and it continued in Jerusalem. Sinai is important because that's the place where the Israelites tried to obey God by their, their human effort, and they failed. Jerusalem is important because the city has rejected Jesus 
and wants to go on trying to obey the law even after Jesus has come. Both resulted in slavery just as Hagar was a slave. Now, if you're a Judaizer or a Jew, these are fighting words, aren't they? You, you want to identify with Isaac, not with Ishmael and Hagar, but Paul is turning the tables on you here. And he's saying that the law, which was to lead you to Christ, will only leave you in slavery if you miss Christ. What's the other covenant here? This is where it gets really interesting. Sarai, who's not even mentioned, she's kind of there in the gaps by implication. Sarai, in her weakness and dependency on God, represents the covenant God made with Abraham much earlier. And very important for us, she anticipates the new covenant, the arrangement God makes with everyone who comes to him in weakness and dependent faith in Jesus. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. The new Jerusalem, the present place where Christ is. Listen to what else the New Testament says about the New Jerusalem. Uh, some familiar verses here. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Or how about Revelation 3? The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the, of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven. And then Paul makes a further connection here. Notice what verse he quotes after this. He goes right from this connection of of Sarah representing the, the, the new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and then the new covenant. He goes right from that into quoting Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a, hu- a husband. All right, the cries here are of the cry of, are the cries of joy. All right, not the labor pains of those who are strong in the normal way, but the one who has no children will be joyful. This verse is really important. If you want to flip back to Isaiah, you can. That's the big book, chapter 54. And I want us to notice in Isaiah that chapter 54 comes right after a collection of songs that Bible teachers call the servant songs. And and the last and best known of these is actually in chapter 53. See if you can... Hear these verses and, and, and recognize the person that they're talking about. So this is Isaiah way back in the Old Testament anticipating somebody. 
Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Do you know this person? Or how about verse 12, the verse right in front of the verse that Paul quotes? Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. All right, who was Isaiah looking forward to? Jesus, right? He's there in the quotation. Uh, Another question, when Jesus took on humanity, did he come in strength? Or did he come in weakness? came in weakness, didn't he? That's what we celebrate at Christmas when he's born as a little baby taking on the, the frailty of human flesh. How was Jesus born? Well, we just said it. He was born by immaculate conception in Mary, uh, his mother, who was also barren, not because she was old, but because she had never known a man. So that's this tremendous reversal that that Paul brings about here. And you can almost hear kind of an offline conversation here uh, um, between Paul and the Judaizers, maybe those who wanted to hear. You hear the Judaizers saying something like, you mean to tell us that we've been wrong all along? Here we thought we were like Isaac because we were strong and tried so hard to keep the law, but we were really wrong. And Paul says, yeah, you only come to God in weakness, by faith and independence on him and his promises. And not only that, but you've been playing the role of Hagar and Ishmael to Sarai and Isaac. Verse 25 in Galatians 4 starts the lesson. And just very quickly, there's a few implications that Paul brings out of his retelling of this story. Notice he's talking here to the Gentiles. He's turned from the Judaizers. Now he's talking to the Galatian Gentiles, which would include almost all of us. What does this lesson mean for everybody else who comes to God in weakness? First of all, you're a true son of Abraham. If you come to God in faith, verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Turn your Bible or turn your your page back probably uh, to Galatians 3, 7. He's already talked about this on the previous chapter. Know then that, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul is completing the reversal here. It's not ethnicity or nationality that makes us right with God, but faith and weakness that makes us right with God. Second, you'll be persecuted if you're born of the Spirit. This is verse 29. You know, Ishmael probably made fun of Isaac because of his mother. Think about it. She was old enough to be his great, 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 maybe great grandfather, grandmother. All right? Uh, kids notice stuff like that. Doubtless Isaac got laughed at. Judaizers mock Gentile believers as second class Christians. Christians today lose face in the public square because we worship a previously dead man 
and we're waiting for him to come back for us when he will appear in the sky. Right? Take that word, that message on The View or one of these daytime talk shows and see the look on people's faces. You really believe that? Yes, we really believe that. We're persecuted. Thirdly, uh, you'll receive the inheritance of your Father in heaven. Those who trust in themselves won't. This is verses 30 and 31. Uh, Cast out the slave woman and her son. Again, it wasn't that God hated Hagar and Ishmael. He took care of them. But they weren't to inherit the promise. Uh, The son born in weakness was to be the inheritor of the promise. And, And fourth implication, this is really important for us. Uh, You'll be tempted to give up your freedom by returning to self-effort. Chapter 5, verse 1 again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The the Galatians were tempted uh, to go back to the law and give up their freedom as those who don't have to make themselves right with God by self-effort. But, you know, we're also tempted to go back on our freedom as well. And here we need to come full circle back to where we were at the beginning as we think about where we find our strength and our freedom as American Christians. Uh, How do we think about ourselves as American Christians? Uh, I left the little slot on the insert empty where it says main idea. You you might want to write something like this. Right-thinking American Christians find their freedom in the God of promise rather than strength of numbers. Right-thinking American Christians find their freedom in the God of promise rather than strength of numbers. Now, if we believe that, and we really should, then there's really good news here for us. Here's the good news. Finding our freedom through the weakness of faith means that we don't have to be in despair when we look around and we find ourselves hopelessly outnumbered, does it? You know, nobody knows if there's ever again going to be an election result that we like. It it might not happen. Nobody knows if there's ever going to be even a reasonable candidate that we can choose. In some countries, they don't even have a slate of anybody in the slate of candidates that Christians like. Nobody knows if the courts are ever going to decide again in our favor or if if uh, our civil, li- civil liberties will remain intact. Right? We work, we're engaged, but we're not trusting in these things. We're not in bondage to the need to be in the majority. Second thought. Finding our freedom through the weakness of faith means that we really need to ask hard questions of ourselves as we learn to depend on God in weakness and as we learn to serve with each other in weakness. And this is where the community conversation comes into play. It needs to be something that we talk about, not just as American Christians, but also in our our local congregation. Here are, some, here are the types of questions that we need to be asking. They relate to our families. They relate to our workplaces. 
They relate to how we think about world events. Just some examples. What does it look like for me to serve in weakness among those with whom I work when we're all in line for a promotion? Hmm? Worth thinking about. What consideration should I give to serving those who can't care for themselves? Examples, the unborn, orphans, the mentally handicapped, refugees, children in our Sunday school program. How much time do we allot to caring for those who really are weak as we learn to serve them in weakness? Here's one that really gets me. Do I read the stories in the middle of the newspaper that deal with poverty in developing countries, or do I just skip from the front page to the opinion page in the back? That one gets me because it shows my heart and what I find to be valuable. Here's a challenging one. What's my emotional reaction to the Syrian refugee crisis? Sometimes we're going to decide that our, we're going to find that our political response is in tension with our Christian response. It's worth asking and we need to talk about it. Or in my circle of church and family, or, or is my circle of church and family friends invitation only? Or does it include those who, because of family status maybe, aren't exactly like me? When I come to understand myself as one who is born of weakness and faith, then I find my freedom in Christ and being weak, and I'm not in slavery to having to be in the majority or having to be strong, and then I find real freedom in serving others who are weak. These are the kinds of questions we need to be talking about with each other, and I'd encourage you to think about them this week. Look for chances to serve uh, in weakness, and next week we'll come together and we'll, we'll unpack this idea of serving through weakness. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, the gospel, which isn't a prescription for things that we need to do out of our own strength. And yet at the same time, we are tempted always to go back to our own strength and to, to come up with different ideas for how we are to succeed. And yet, Father, you, you've asked us to serve you out of human weakness, and, and yet your spirit is here with us. And you help us. Help us this week as we think about this passage. Help us as you probe our thinking and as we interact in our, in our world. Would you help us to trust you in weakness? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.